Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming to the first in this year's Minerva series. My name's Helen Featherstone, and I'm your host for today. Um, I get the joy of introducing Ian and the lecture tonight, and also just giving you a few kind of housekeeping rules and uh, you know, the usual kind of stuff. But we've got a lot of people here tonight, and I know there are some regulars and there are perhaps some people who've never been here before. So can I see, are there some people who've been to one of these Minerva lectures before? I'm guessing you've been before. Yes, there's a few. Brilliant. So thank you very much and welcome back. Um, you will realise that I am not June Ward. Okay, and, um, and I wanted to just let you know the reason why I'm not June Ward. So June, and for those of you who haven't been to one of these lectures before, has hosted these um, lectures for many, many years and has put in a lot of time and effort into um, hosting these and making these events happen. And June has decided to stand down from hosting the events. So uh, we just really want to say a big heartfelt thank you from the university to say thanks very much to June for all her work and energy that she's put in um, to the lecture, th lecture series over the years. So I'm, I'm here today. I'll be here next month. Don't quite know what's going to happen after that, so we'll, we shall see. Um, so for those of you who haven't been to one of these lectures before, they're a regular event. They happen monthly. Um, lots of different topics. The next one is around plastics and how we are changing plastics so that they're more environmentally friendly and biodegradable, so do come along to that. Not quite sure the other ones. We'll have a Christmas special, which will be fun. Um, for those of you who've not been to the campus before, a great welcome. Thank you for coming up. I hope um, you found your journey straightforward. I know it's not been easy for some people. But uh, anyway, so um, housekeeping stuff. I think there's some uh, signs on the slide, but there, we're not expecting a fire alarm. So if the fire alarm does go off, we're going out of the fire exits and we're heading out there. Um, toilets are out the front as well. Um, what else have we got? We're filming the lecture tonight, so Ian's, Ian will be recorded. And I can't help but notice there are a few people who snuck in at the back, um, which may mean if you haven't been registered, if you registered on Eventbrite and you haven't been clocked in, we won't send you that email because we won't think you were here. So if you want to get that recording, then do just find um, Laura or Gemma who were scanning people in and just make sure you get scanned in. Uh, we will be taking some photos this evening. Nick here. We'll be taking photos. Do let him know if you don't want to be included in those photographs. Not entirely sure how you let him know. Maybe you just tell him to bugger off if you see a camera pointing at you, but, uh, but do let him know. Uh, the rest of the evening then, we're going to hear from Ian for 45 minutes um, and about 10 or 15 minutes of Q&A and discussion at the end, and so we'll be wrapping up at just a little bit past 7 o'clock. Um, I hope you all know why you're here. We're here to hear from Ian because he recently cycled 4,300 kilometres in just 11 days. And not only did he do that, he actually came first. Um, and not only that, he was eight hours ahead of the next person. Quite, quite extraordinary. Um, and Ian is a senior lecturer here at the university. He's in the Department of Psychology where he does research onto transport and environmental behaviours. So his, his kind of cycling is kind of part of your research as well, isn't it? So yeah. it's, it's kind of like who Ian is. So I will stop there. Um, I think that's everything I've had to say. I'll hand you over to Ian who will um, carry on. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. And thank you so much for everyone for coming. It's incredibly flattering to have quite so many people here. Um, so... I'm going to try and tell the story of what it was like to race this race. Um, there were lots of ways I could have sliced this, so I've essentially decided to do it more or less chronologically and try and show you how the thing unfolded uh, as it did. 
Uh, we've also got a few little excerpts of videos from experts at the university who've also volunteered to do little videos to add some uh, expert commentary to this as well, which should be quite interesting. Um, so, how did this all begin? Uh, it actually began with walking, surprisingly. So, years ago, um, probably back in about 2011, something like that, I stumbled across this book um, and, and read this book about the Long Distance Walkers Association, uh, which is a very interesting, slightly eccentric, very British uh, organisation that you've probably never heard of. Uh, and one of the things you realise if you come across the LDWA is that their big annual thing is a 100-mile walk. And I'd heard of this, and I read this book, and somehow this idea just got planted. And I just kept thinking, what would it be like to walk 100 miles? You know, it's the idea of being able to say, I've walked 100 miles, just, just sort of gnawed away at my brain. And I thought, I'm going to give it a go. And this just came out of nowhere. I wasn't doing anything remotely like this. I wasn't walking, I wasn't running, I wasn't doing anything. But just this idea emerged to, let's see what it's like to walk 100 miles. And so I entered a qualifying walk, so I did a 50-mile walk. Uh, to qualify, which ended up with me falling asleep in a bush by the side of the path. Um, and then, sure enough, come 2012, I think it was, uh, I did the Long Distance Walkers Association 100-mile walk, which was across from coast to coast, from Cornwall to Devon, uh, and I was just destroyed. This thing just broke me. I, I'm genuinely not exaggerating when I say the last 15 miles were probably about one mile an hour because uh, my feet were in such a mess. I had blisters like you wouldn't believe. I was probably literally walking about this pace uh, and it was real, just mind over matter. And I mean, this is the aftermath here. Um, and, but I got there, I finished. I got to the end, I finished and just thought, great, that was good. I've done this thing. I, 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 was curious to see what it would be like to walk 100 miles. I've done it. Turns out it really hurts. <laughs> uh, and then I just kind of forgot about it. That was it. I'd, I'd set out to do this thing. I'd done it, and I just moved on and didn't really think any more about it. And then something like six months later, uh, one of my friends, Rick, just sent me an email completely out of the blue um, and just said, I've seen this thing. Uh, this looks amazing. If you can walk 100 miles, I think you can do this. Let's do it. And he sent me a link to a video on YouTube of a race called Transvolcania, uh, which is this uh, roughly 50-mile running race in La Palma in the Canary Islands. And I, I was going to show you the video, but they've changed it, unfortunately, so I can't show you the original video. But you watch it, and you just see these incredible landscapes, and, and the race starts down on the beach at before dawn, and there's thousands of runners, all with headlamps, and it's this incredible spectacle, and people are running up these volcanic ridges, and the clouds lurking down below, and I watched this video and just went, right, okay, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and this was a few weeks before I turned 40, and basically, I just became a runner at that point. Um, I, this was... October 2013, uh, and the race was the following Mar uh, May. So I had seven months to, to get from nothing to running an ultramarathon. 
so I thought, right, how do you do this? And I looked for advice on how you run ultramarathons, and they all assume that you've run marathons. So I thought, right, better do that first. So I entered a marathon in Portsmouth at Christmas, uh, which is a good marathon to do because they have rum and sherry on the aid stations. So I, I basically, in three months, I went from nothing to a marathon. Um, I went from marathon to doing this, and actually it was everything they promised it would be. It was amazing. The views were incredible. The atmosphere was just stunning. Uh, here I am. This is at the very, very peak of the climb on top of the volcano. Uh, you can see that there's observatories up there, and I can assure you they don't put those low down. You have to climb an awfully long way to get to observatories. Um, basically, it was going really well. And I was having the time of my life until about four, well, maybe about three or two or three kilometers from the finish when my legs just gave up. And you know, inexperience did its thing. And long story short, I spent an hour lying in a gutter uh, with this huge shirtless Spanish man trying to persuade me to carry on up the hill. And eventually, his magic did its thing. I got back on my feet. I managed to drag myself to the finish. That's me crossing the finish line in the verge of tears. Um, somehow, I managed to get across. But somehow, a seed was planted. And to try and make this look vaguely scientific, I've done a graph of my running. <laughs> and as you, so as, I think this is, when I sat down to try and write this, I realized there was a certain theme that I'm a bit impetuous. Uh, so as you can see, I went from not running, not running, not running, not running, not running, not running, started to run in autumn, running a lot. Um, and that was kind of how the next three years went. I just became this full-on long-distance runner. And it was amazing. Some of the races I did, um, so yeah, I did quite a few, but here are some of the highlights and lowlights. Uh, the one up at the top, this is where uh, I ran the Cotswold Way Century in less than 24 hours, which is something not many people have done. Um, this race at the top right, this was the Ark of Attrition. This is a race in the middle of winter, 100 miles around the coast of Cornwall, designed to be hard. So the, the year this happened, the organiser said, um, it's great news, uh, we've got five named storms all hitting this weekend. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was absolutely brutal. I mean, 72% uh, of the field dropped out during that race, but I managed to finish in the top 10, which was amazing. Uh, sometimes it went less well. I mean, so this one here, this is the, the Verbier St. Bernard race, because uh, you get to travel when you do these things, if you can afford it. Um, that was going well. I was having a great time there, and then I just collapsed completely on top of the St. Bernard Pass with no energy whatsoever. Leadville, famous 100-mile race in America. Uh, as you can see, it starts at 10,000 feet and goes up from there, and it turns out I'm not very good at altitude. Uh, and I just lost it completely and got timed out 60 miles into the race. And I'll come back to that because I've got something to say about that a bit later. Um, so the running was going really, really well. And I was loving it. I was doing fairly well at the running. Not great, but I generally would finish sort of in the top 10 or 15% of most races I took part in. But it was just fun. And then I came across this, uh, which the cyclists among you may have heard of. Uh, the transcontinental race. I stumbled across this and it changed everything. So maybe I can best explain this by showing you the transcontinental in its own words. So this is the words of the person who set the race up. 
Uh, at the sharp end, it's a beautifully hard bicycle race, simple in design but complex in execution. Factors of self-reliance, logistics, navigation and judgment burden racers' minds as well as their physiques. Now, the way the race works is you start in Belgium, you go to Greece, and as long as you hit four mountaintops along the way, you can do it however you want. So that's what they're getting at here. There's no fixed route. You choose your own route. Uh, and as long as you get to those checkpoints, you can do anything. Uh, and that means there's quite a lot to think about. The strongest excel and redefine what we think possible, while many experienced riders target only a finish. I wasn't really cycling at this point, but I came across this race and went, oh yeah, that looks fun. And it was, the thing that appealed about it was it just felt big. I mean, it, it genuinely was, looking back, it was genuinely, when people say, you know, you should do something that scares you, this genuinely scared me. The idea of going off and just being day after day in places that I'd never go to. When, when would I go to Serbia? When would I go to Macedonia? When would I cross places like this? And the thought of being out there and being so on your own in these places that I'd never normally go to just grabbed me. And I saw a, a, a photo essay at the time uh, showing all these people collapsed in heaps and shivering under blankets. And I thought, oh yeah, let's give this a go. <laughs> um, and in line with the impetuous nature, uh, you can see, so the, the running that you saw earlier just basically stopped and I just started cycling. And as you can see, I went, so I started in October and the next year did 20 odd thousand kilometers. Um, so it's good to be impetuous about these things. And so this is the route I took. If you look around the edge, you can see the, the profile of the race. Uh, and it was extraordinary. And the thing is, I went into it with no expectations. I had no idea how this was going to go. Uh, and actually turned out to be doing better than I thought. So as we hit the first checkpoint in Germany, I rolled in and they said, oh, you're in 16th place. And now this was out of about 300 people. And I thought, ooh, okay, that's not bad. Um, better keep pushing. And so I started pushing. I, I overtook several people during the next day. And I was like, oh, I'm moving up the field, moving up the field. And then I climbed a com a, an enormous alp completely unnecessarily. Everybody else noticed the cycle path around the bottom of it. <laughs> and I climbed this category one Alp for no good reason and lost all of those. But I rolled into checkpoint two and said, where am I? And they said, oh, you're 16th. Oh, okay. So all that effort completely wasted. When it carried on, I climbed up the field. Uh, you know, I still climbed up the field in, in Slovakia. And then it all went horribly wrong. I had just inner tube after inner tube after inner tube fail on me. I lost the best part of a day going backwards in Romania and, and it all went horribly wrong. But it was amazing. The experience is incredible. You can see the, the contrast between the enthusiasm at the start and the resigned um, brushing of teeth at checkpoint three here. Uh, this was after I'd slept in a bush shelter for two hours. Um, because with the nature of these races is there's nothing planned. You're completely self-supported. The clock starts at the beginning and it stops when you get to the finish and everything between that is up to you. If you want to sleep, you deal with it. If you want to get food, you find it. There's no help allowed. It's completely self-supported. And it made it incredibly hard, but it made it incredibly rewarding and exciting. Uh, and also very taxing, as you can see. And then... Having finished that, we get on to the, the main meat of this, 
I, I got to the finish of the uh, transcontinental thinking, right, okay, now I've done this, now I've dragged myself across a continent, I, now I see how you do this. And it was like my first thought as I finished was, right, that's how you do it. Okay, I need to enter another race. <laughs> because now I see how you do this, I think I could have done that a lot better. So, I, the, so this year, I looked for another race, and this one grabbed me. And the reason it did <coughs> was this. It was the, the logic of the route. You start in Italy, and you just go north until you run out of Europe. And that, that, that's literally what it is. You just go north and north and north and north and north until there's nothing left. You go to the wildest, most remote part of the continent, and the first one there wins. Uh, the subtle difference from the last race was that this was a fixed route. So we all had a route that we followed. Uh, but otherwise, very similar idea. Clock starts at the beginning, stops at the end. You're on your own. Um, just a quick note about what I carried, because uh, I think people seem to get quite interested in what you need for this sort of thing. And the answer is as little as possible. This is my bike at the finish. Uh, and basically, I had uh, the bag in the middle was stuff for the day. So it was like tools, arm warmers, uh, chamois cream, things like that. Uh, the bag at the back was night. So that was a sleeping bag, bivy bag, mattress, um, and a warm top. And the bag on top was things like contact lenses and a spoon. Um, otherwise, that was kind of it. So there was no spare clothes, no extra anything. It was down to the absolute minimum. So <coughs> now we're on to the race. Uh, I thought I'd go through it more or less in the order it unfolded and just describe how it went and how I got there. So this is the first bit. Uh, the first three days took me across these countries. And there's the route that it took. So you can see we started off at Lake Garda. Uh, and then the route that we were given to follow took us up uh, through the Alps, over the Reschen Pass in the Alps, um, and into Austria, across Bavaria on a Sunday when nothing is open, um, and then basically across the Czech Republic, or Czechia as they now call it. Uh, and that was interesting because it's, it's hilly on the way in and it's hilly on the way out of that country. Um, so it went, well, it started quite badly, if I'm honest. Uh, I got a bit over-enthusiastic on the start line, uh, went out a bit hard, tried to keep up with the fast boys, um, which meant by the middle of the first day, climbing over the Reschen Pass, I was really struggling. I was going far too slow up the hill. Um, people were passing me on the way up. And so immediately I'm thinking, oh, God, this is depressing. Um, because I... I'd set out with the aim of trying to do a fast race. You know, I was thinking, if I'm going to enter this, let's try and do a good job. Let's train. Let's try and go as fast as I can. Let's have a stab at winning this, uh, which is a situation I'd never been in before. All of those things you saw before, all the running, uh, the transcontinental, my starting point had always been, let's just go and do this thing. Let's just go and do it and enjoy it. And I should say my starting point here was, let's have a go at winning which is something I'd never even tried to do before. Um, and it was going horribly wrong. Day one, I'm limping up this climb with person after person sailing past me as if they're going downhill. So, hey, like this. Um, just feeling awful. Uh, and I got to the end of the first day, and the end of the first day was miserable. It started to rain. Uh, the only place I could find to sleep was 
outside a bank in a little Austrian town, and there was cars whizzing past constantly. I got no sleep whatsoever. <coughs> it was uh, not a good start. Day one was thoroughly miserable. But of course, it can only get better. So day two was miserable as well, <coughs> because Royal Bavaria is both dull and closed on Sundays. Uh, and so I basically limped along, going far slower than I wanted to. Um, you know, the legs had nothing left. The first day had been so over hard, my legs were miserable, I was really struggling to get any sort of pace going. <clears throat> and already it became this matter of trying to persuade myself. The mind over matter thing started to kick in immediately of, look, just, just got to keep moving. It's not going well, but just keep moving and hopefully it'll all come good. Uh, then crossed into Czechia and things started to definitely get better. So as I crossed into the Czech Republic and started towards the first checkpoint of Prague, things did improve. I started to feel a lot better, started to eat as much as I could. I'll say something about food in a minute. Um, I started to throw the food down, started to feel better, started to get over the first day. The second day, by taking it easy on the second day, I was able to recover from going too hard on the first day. And as day three hit, and that was spent just sleeping next to a lake out in the wilds. Um, as day three hit, my body came back. I started to work again, it was fantastic. Uh, this was actually my view as I started day three here, which is really nice. Uh, so day three dawned bright, uh, legs started to feel good, started to move, started to pass people again, which was fantastic. And rolled into Prague, having made some good progress. Uh, now, because I'd set out to try and do this fast, one of the things I'd said to myself was, you, you cannot waste time. There can be no messing around here. Faffing must be minimized. So yeah, I couldn't enjoy Prague. You roll into an amazing city like Prague, it was literally uh, turn up at the, the checkpoint, hand your card over, get it stamped, and go, right, which way? And off again. So I was in and out of Prague in half an hour and saw nothing, which is a thoroughly miserable way to be a tourist. Uh, this, I should just mention this, um, I said I slept really badly on the first night and part way through the second day, it was baking hot, I was, ex I was really tired from not having slept well, it was 44 degrees Celsius, it was really hot and horrible, and I thought, I just need to rest for a minute, I just, I just need to get out of this sun. And I spotted a bus shelter down a side street, and I thought, oh, fantastic. And I went down, and not only was there a nice sh shady bus shelter, it had a mattress. And he's like, oh, thank you. Thank you, God. And it even had a teddy bear. Bavaria's weird, but it had a mattress and a teddy bear. And I thought, this is amazing. I lay down on that mattress, ready for like a 20-minute power nap. And as I just lay there, I looked up, and the ceiling was just crawling with wasps' nests. <laughs> and, like, oh. and it was this battle between really wanting a lie down and not wanting to be stung to death. And in the end, I did slink out and lose my nap. So wasps owe me. Um, so one of the things that becomes really important is eating well in a, a high-profile sporting competition like this. Um, so obviously, you have to pay a lot of attention to what you eat. And you know, very careful selection of highly nutritious food would have been a good idea. <laughs> Instead, it was more like this. Because when you're doing this sort of thing, you don't have the option. You can only eat what you can find. 
Um, and that basically means eating at takeaways, eating at petrol stations, eating at supermarkets. And so this is genuinely the sort of stuff I was eating. Um, the fillet of fish is an amazing thing. Uh, these up here, for anyone who's done long distance riding, these are legendary. The seven days croissant is just this legend. They're, they're available all over Eastern Europe. They cost about 40p and they're about 500 calories each. Uh, they're just incredible, and you know, they can stuff in your pocket, they don't go off, it doesn't matter if they get hot, uh, they're just this super fuel. Uh, this picture is interesting, this picture is actually quite late in the race, this was towards the end, and this shows, the. it was just quite interesting how what I was able to eat changed over the race. So, yes, I started out eating solid fuel, but towards the end I actually found it so much easier to drink as much of my food as I could, and yoghurt became a really, really big part of my diet. Um, now, we've got the first of our expert commentaries, which is Javier Gonzalez, who I notice is sitting here, who's got something to say about sports nutrition, being one of the world's leading experts in the area. So one of the main challenges with an endurance event such as this is trying to manage the nutritional needs of exercise. When we exercise, we burn a mixture of carbohydrates and fat as a fuel. And as we increase the exercise intensity, we become, become more and more reliant on carbohydrates to fuel and less reliant on fat as a fuel. And the problem with that is that our carbohydrate stores are relatively limited, and when these stores become depleted, we fatigue very easily. Now, during the event, Ian mentioned that he struggled in particular on day one. And if we look at the intensity of exercise throughout the event, it's clear that Ian pushed very hard on day one, and so he was likely burning through these carbohydrate stores very rapidly. Then throughout the rest of the event, he dropped the intensity and was potentially able to then burn more fat as a fuel and spare these important carbohydrate stores. So Ian managed to manage <coughs> the demands of exercise by manipulating exercise intensity, and he also followed a few nutritional strategies that probably provided a benefit too. Ian mentioned he was consuming lots of sugary yogurts, and the sugars and, and protein in the yogurt probably helped in his recovery from exercise too. So yogurt is the super fuel. Um, so that's good advice from Javi there. Uh, I don't know what, if he'd be quite so enthusiastic about the other thing I consumed a lot of, which was appalling energy drinks. <laughs> because when you, wander into, when you wander into petrol stations in, in Eastern Europe, they're just there in your face and you're weak and your mind's not working properly. You just go, yeah, and no, I'll have one of them. Um, I fully support the ban on selling these to kids having drunk as many as I have. Uh, and that one on the left in particular was a really bad idea. <laughs> that did not sit well in my tummy. Um, so then we pushed on. So the end of the third night, I wanted to go further. My plan had always been to push into the night quite a bit, uh, go through the dark, go to maybe two in the morning as much as possible, uh, bivouac out somewhere, and that way I could be more in control of when, how far I went and when I finished the day. Uh, the third day didn't quite work out like that because uh, my batteries were getting low. I needed to get indoors so I could char recharge my battery packs. Uh, so I ended up staying in uh, a little hostel right on the very, very border between uh, Czech Republic and Poland, which is up on a mountain pass. And actually, it's a big mistake. Just a little tip for anyone who's thinking of this, don't sleep high. Uh, it's, a, it's a classic mistake to sleep up on a mountain because it means the next morning you get freezing cold as you drop down off it. So if you're going to sleep, sleep low, but that was, I didn't have an option. Um, so this is then the, the next few days. Uh, so it took a, just over two days to cross Poland, 
because Poland is really big, uh, which took us through the second checkpoint of Warsaw. Uh, and then from Poland up through the Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. And I'll talk through how this went, because this is kind of where some of the interesting bits of the race unfolded. Um, so the first day was dropping off. I, I got up really early while well, it was still dark. Uh, rode past these two very, very surprised policemen sitting in their car at 3.30 in the morning. Um, shot down the hill, freezing cold down the mountain, and suddenly found that rural Poland is awake unbelievably early. Like this bit of Poland down here, everybody's up and around at four in the morning. I don't know what they do for a living, but the street's just full of people at four o'clock. It's ridiculous. Um, then wandered across Poland and saw sights. So uh, the top one is Warsaw. That's, that's as long as I started. The long, you know, I said I was on the move. I said I was trying not to waste time. I stopped long enough to take that photo and then moved on. So that's how much I saw of Warsaw. You know, just blasting through these major European capital cities without seeing a thing, which is ridiculous. Um, a couple of Polish roads, which I just put on here out of interest. Um, the left one is typical in the sense that it's really boring. Uh, and it's not typical in the sense it's not full of potholes. So most Polish roads, roads were not as well built as this, but they were as boring as this. Uh, some of them were interesting, in the, like this one. Interesting in the sense of they were going to judy your body to pieces. And I kept seeing these signs. And I don't know what their warning is about, um, but I'm just glad I didn't meet one. Probably the most interesting in Poland was running into this guy. So this is Alesh, who eventually came second in the race. And I bumped into him partway through the day. It was incredibly hot. This, this photo was taken at a petrol station where we were rubbing our screams on ourselves to try and cool down. Um, and we had a slightly interesting finish to the day. So one of the issues I found in the middle of Europe was there was a real mosquito infestation going on. And so in that whole bit across Poland, Lithuania, and so on, my plan to sleep outside at night really got sidelined, and I had to start finding hotels and places to sleep indoors. And this day, I'd been riding through the afternoon and the evening with Alesh, and it got to 11, 12 o'clock at night, and we were trying to find somewhere we could sleep indoors. And we went from one town to another, and we, yeah, is there a hotel here? And people go, no, hotel in this town? You're joking. And eventually, we were in this little tiny middle-of-nowhere town, and we found these four guys just drinking beer in the park at one in the morning. And we said, um, is there a hotel here? And this guy, and this, is, this is what happened. This guy got his phone out and went, yes, there's a, a motel three kilometers down the road, and they've got a spare room. And that's how long it took. It was like, and I just assumed this was a wind-up. Because if that was in Britain, and you found some teenagers drinking in the park, and one of them made a 12-second phone call and told you there was a hotel room waiting for you, obviously that's a wind-up. So I naturally assumed that's what happened, but we had no other option. It was one in the morning, mosquitoes everywhere. So we set off up the road for this three kilometers to the motel. And so we went three kilometers, and then four, and then five, and then six, and seven. And I said, Alish, how far do we go before we decide that this was a wind-up? And he said, oh, let, let's look at the map. And we got the map out and went, oh, we've gone the wrong direction. <laughs> so we went seven kilometers back 
and then the original three kilometers that we were supposed to do and sure enough there's this massive motel this huge truckers motel intended for itinerant truck drivers and sure enough they had one room left and they put it aside for us and it was the most seedy motel room i've ever spent the night in it had gold lame sheets on the bed um, i think i think it was normally rented by the hour and basically just just a precursor something i'm going to mention later i tweeted about the gold lame sheets and basically it seemed to have caused an enormous amount of amusement for people back home so they're going to reappear later but basically i got to spend the night with this guy uh, so we shared a room you, you you literally meet strange bedfellows out on the roads doing these sorts of races uh, then the next morning we went our separate ways again and i very quickly crossed the border into lithuania and came across this and that there is russia because as you probably know there's this weird bit of russia that sits all on its own uh, a long way from the rest of russia and i was riding along and suddenly going oh my god there's russia and that fence there is it i suspect you'd have been very unwelcome you climbed over it uh, there was razor wire the whole way there were uh, video cameras probably every 50 meters um, they really don't seem very keen on people getting in uh, but I just thought it was fascinating to ride along and suddenly there's Russia right next to you um, but you know riding across the Lithuania was was interesting it was you know suddenly it felt a lot nicer than Poland I'm sorry Poland but Lithuania is a lot nicer um, and I thought this was an interesting time because one of the things that everyone's asked me since I got back is what is it like what's the experience of sitting on a bike for day after day after day riding this sort of race and I thought this might just be a good time to try and describe what it feels like to do this sort of thing if you've not tried it and probably the thing my overwhelming memory of doing this was just how absolutely absorbing it is to do this sort of ride uh, you know with the slight exception of something I'll say later I was never bored I was always focused on something there's always something to think about you're always thinking about like where am I when will I next find food where can I sleep tonight how far have I gone where are the other riders there's always something to be thinking about and it becomes so absorbing there's some you know looking after yourself navigating planning your routes planning your stops seeking out food it absorbs you so much that I was just utterly focused the whole time and, and hardly ever had a thought um, outside of the race and what it meant was the time went by so quickly it was easily the fastest 11 days I've ever experienced the one exception and, and there's something in this is something about the motion because the one time that that spell would get broken and I'd start to realize what I was doing was when I stopped and it turned out stopping is not good because when you stop you start to realize what you're doing because um, yeah, you, you sort of have these moments of lucidity these moments where you, you realize what you're doing and you suddenly go oh my god I'm a 44 year old doctor of philosophy and I'm sat in a car park on the verge of tears because I can't open a packet of Haribo <laughs> and and so it's important not to stop because then you start asking those questions about why on earth am I doing this the other strange mental thing that happens is how your perspectives change when you're a thousand two thousand three thousand kilometers into something like this your perspective just changes wildly 
And you, you, at one point, I remember laughing out loud in the middle of the road, just because I'd caught myself really seriously thinking, oh, then it's only another 300 kilometers. <laughs> and your perspective changes to the point where you find yourself saying things like that seriously. Um, one of the things that was really interesting, and I'll just mention this very briefly, something that had happened on the transcontinental race and happened again here, was every now and again, that mental focus, that being in the moment, gets broken by people who swoop in, who are following the race. And you suddenly realize, oh, there's actually a bigger thing going on here. People are actually out there following this. So this happened on the transcontinental several times. I remember I was in Italy. when I, That Alp that I mentioned, that I climbed over an unnecessary Alp, as I was riding down it, a guy suddenly pulled alongside on his bike and went, are you Ian? And he'd been following the race, because we all have satellite trackers. He'd been following the race, noticed I was near his house, and came out to say hello. And that kept happening. You pass through towns, and someone would just go, hey, Ian, like this, in the, in the middle of Slovenia. Hey, Ian, how are you doing? And it happened again here. So this was a town in the middle of Latvia. Um, I just wandered out of a supermarket with like, arms full of food like this. And this guy's going, hey, how are you doing? I've been following the race. Um, and turned out to be a local guy and was taking photos. Uh, so there I am in the middle of this town. S. I can't, so the town's name began with S. I can't remember what it was, but that's why they've got a massive S in the middle of town. Uh, so that was in the middle of that. And Latvia, from a racing perspective, Latvia is where this now got exciting. Because, like I said, we had a fixed route for the race, but there was a 42-kilometer dirt road section in the middle of Latvia. So there's a big bit of Latvia where none of the roads are finished properly. And the organizers had said, because this bit's going to be so rough, this is the one bit where you can go off route if you want. If you want to bypass this dirt track, feel free to do that. So at this stage, I was about sixth or seventh in the race. And as we approached this dirt track, I thought, nah, let's go for it. And so I hit this dirt, and it was awful. It was just, my bike was not a dirt bike. It was, the bike was not intended for this. And it was just this brutal shaking like this, and you're bouncing up and down, and that, my hands are screaming in agony. Um, and I did this for like a couple of hours, and got to the halfway point, and looked at the map to see where everyone else was. And I saw that uh, the second, third, fourth, fifth place people, they'd already detoured around. They'd just avoided it completely and taken a much longer route. So I'd got ahead of them, and as I was at this halfway point, I saw that the one guy who was ahead of the whole race had suddenly turned off at that point. He was just ahead of me, but he turned off. He'd obviously had too much of this shaking and turned off and got on a longer route. I thought, right, here's my chance. So it's like two more hours of battering down this dirt track, and I ended up up near the front of the race. And what you can probably see, if you look at the dark blue line there, that was one day's riding. And basically, uh, yeah, uh, sort of somewhere, this won't work, I don't think. Oh, yeah, somewhere sort of here is where I got to the front of the race. And I just thought, right. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> that, would, that would be much more impressive. No, sorry, somewhere here. Uh, <laughs> I got to the front of the race and I thought, right, let's go for it. Let's do an all-nighter. Um, and so just, I remember crossing the border here into Estonia just as it got dark. And I basically did all that through the night and just pushed ahead, pushed ahead. I had this advantage and thought, right, I'm, I'm just going to do it. And I pushed ahead and, and built this lead over everyone else. The guy who was suddenly at that point in second place, who'd been leading everything so far, 
One of the reasons he'd been leading so far was that he'd pushed all the way through the night on the first day. So I kind of had a, a trump card. With a race of this sort, you can blast through a night maybe once. He'd already done that, I hadn't. And so by sort of playing that trump card at this point of going through the night through Estonia, I was able to build this lead and suddenly get ahead. This is not something I'm used to. I'm not used to being in the front of races. And I'll, as I'll say, that became quite an all-consuming part of this. Um, something that becomes incredibly important and became hugely um, a, a big focus both to my mind and my perineum was the issue of staying aerodynamic on the bike because it makes such a big difference to the, to the speed that you can accomplish. And even something like just shrugging your shoulders and hunching them up or getting your head down can make a genuine difference to the speed that you're able to keep going. And so when you're trying to get as fast as you can, um, this becomes all-consuming. And this is actually where we have a second of our videos, where we have one of Bath's aerodynamicists to say a little bit about this. Oops. Bicycles are a stupid way of overcoming aerodynamic drag. If you are going to try to go fast in air, more or less upright like that is not the way to do it. You'll see racing cyclists bend over into the, um, in, into the, the flow, into the air, which is improving things a bit. But in the end, if you want to go fast on a bicycle, what you really want is a big fairing. It, it's not a sensible way of overcoming aerodynamic drag, which means that even a small increase in speed costs you a lot in energy. You can work out what the change in power that you need is for going into a headwind. So even for a five kilometer an hour headwind, which is not ridiculous, it's, it's a fairly gentle breeze really, to keep his speed over the ground the same, he'd need the equivalent of about one Mars bar or two onion badgies, depending on what your favorite cuisine is, to just to keep his speed up per hour. I think we all know it's Mars bars. Um, and then, there was the race to the ferry. Tallinn was the ferry port. There was, a, I won't go into the details, but there's a whole horrible complication of you had to sort your ferry out yourself. There are three separate ferry companies. They all go at different times. You have to book ahead, which means lots of that in the middle of the night in Estonia. Uh, but basically I got to the ferry, fell asleep for an hour and a half, and then hit the ground in Helsinki in the middle of the afternoon. And then this is the final push. So basically, long story short, I found myself in Helsinki at two in the afternoon, leading a big bicycle race uh, with no experience of how you do this. Uh, and I looked at the map, I remember looking at the map and seeing that and thinking, oh God, this is going to be hard. Because uh, North Cape is a long way from Helsinki, uh, as I can personally attest now. So I set out, I headed out, uh, started blasting up the roads as much as I could, really slow drag out of Helsinki. Um, had well, those another of those incredibly fortuitous moments where about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, just coming up to midnight, the heavens opened. It just started to pour down. Like, oh, God, here we go. And just as I thought that, I looked across and there's hotel sign <laughs> flashing like this. Oh, thank you. Um, straight to the hotel, crashed into a bed. I've, they've still got my sunglasses somewhere, which is very annoying. Uh, and then I hit the, hit the road again the next morning. As you can see, the next day was quite a big day. Just, just from the mental perspective, I'll just mention something very briefly from the mental perspective. Uh, like I say, 
riding this was all-consuming. You didn't think about anything. I never got bored. The only exception was if I knew where I was going to finish for the day. So this light green section, you can see it finishes up there. It's actually in a, a town called Aulu up there. And at some point during the afternoon, I went online and booked a hotel for the night, uh, which had 24-hour reception. So I knew that I could get there at maybe 3 in the morning and still get a bit of sleep. Um, and interestingly, as soon as I knew where I was going to stop, it became a real drag. You know, to ride alone through the dark in Finland, n thinking, I'll just stop when I feel like it, that's absolutely fine. I can do that for hours. But to ride through the same road thinking, oh, I need to get to Aulu, suddenly it becomes hard work. And so there's something very interesting about that mental aspect of knowing where you're going to finish versus knowing you've got the freedom just to stop when you want. And knowing where you've got to get to is hard. Knowing you can just stop whenever you feel like it is freeing. Uh, and the next day, oh, oh yeah, that Finland, there it is, that's all of it. Uh, a lot of it looks like this. A lot of it just needs a big Sibelius soundtrack because it looks like this and it's very empty and peaceful. It's actually very, very beautiful. Um, oh, sorry, I'll skip over. Sorry, Hermieta, I'm going to skip over that. Um, are you here, Hermieta? Okay. <laughs> so, um, so then, the Arctic Circle. Now, this felt like a real landmark. This is very exciting to hit the Arctic Circle. So this is in a town called Rovaniemi. Uh, this complex behind, this is where Father Christmas lives. So I got there slightly too late. This was about 7 o'clock in the evening. But if you get there in office hours, you can go and meet Father Christmas and give him your letter and make any requests that you've got. Um, but unfortunately, I got there slightly too late. Uh, now, this evening... <laughs> Um, was, yeah, I was back on my routine of just ride until two in the morning and then hole up somewhere. Uh, but by God, it got cold that night. Um, it got, it was just bitter. It's a, in, you know, according to my bike computer, it was only down to minus one. But there was something about the air. There was, there was something about the humidity or something like that that it was just bitterly cold. So I ended up wearing every single item of clothing I had, which actually was six layers of clothing on top, and I was still too cold. Uh, and so I ended up wrapping my sleeping bag all around my torso, and that got me about another hour, and then I got too cold again. And eventually I, I found a load of magazines in a bus shelter, and was tearing those up and stuffing them down my clothes, and even with six layers and the sleeping bag and magazines stuffed down my clothes, I was still too cold. And in the end, I just had to climb into my sleeping bag and go to sleep, uh, staring at the tracker to see where everyone else was. And thankfully, they'd all stopped as well, so they'd obviously suffered with the cold as well. And, and this raises the question that you're probably thinking here, why do it? Um, why put yourself through this? You know, to, to steal a line from Bill Bryson, you're not in the army. You don't have to do this. Um, and I've given a lot of thought to this over the, over the years. And I think there is an answer to why I do these things. Uh, and the answer is it's because it's hard. It's, it's good to do something difficult now and again. It's good to just experience what it's like to do something difficult. Um, and one of the reasons for that is it's practice. It gives you practice at dealing with difficult things in a nicely controlled way. And something I thought I'd just share very briefly tonight 
is some of the sayings that are used by ultra-endurance athletes to describe this sort of thing. Because there's a few sayings that come up again and again amongst long-distance cyclists and long-distance runners that I think are just really important general lessons. So here's a couple of them. Um, if you can't change your circumstances, change how you feel about them. This is something you'll hear people say a lot in races. Uh, because when you are, you know, let's say you're running and you're 80 miles into a 100-mile race and you've got blisters the size of Belgium on your feet and you've not eaten for two hours and you're, you're vomiting in a bush, you can't make that go away. That's where you are. Uh, you can't change that circumstance, but you can change how you feel about it. And that's your only sensible strategy at that point. And when you've gone through that, as I have, you realize that the strategy works. It never always gets worse, <laughs> is a very common saying along, along long, distance, uh, long distance runners. Uh, very often what you find when you're doing these things is you feel terrible and you think, oh, well, this will change. And it does, it gets worse. And then, then it gets worse again. But it never always gets worse. As long as you keep going, it'll swing up again. Oh, God. Um, and sometimes you just have to, like someone said to me at Leadville when I couldn't get out of a chair, look, it's just one foot in front of the other. And sometimes reducing the task down to that most minimum thing is all that it takes. The penultimate day, I was chased that far. Uh, there were people nipping at my heels on the tracker. Uh, there were some issues with people jumping ahead on the tracker. Uh, so this was spent basically in an absolute panic uh, pushing myself far too hard. And at the end of the day, I crossed over into Norway and knew there was one day left to go. I took far too little sleep and began the final day absolutely exhausted, completely sleep deprived, couldn't get my contact lenses in um, to do this. And the problem was, I said to myself, oh, it's, it's just the last day, it's just the last bit to the finish, which was actually 280 kilometers. But because I'd said to myself, oh, it's just the last bit, I thought it was going to be over quickly, and in fact, it took forever. Um, it was a lot. It's beautiful. It's such a nice part of the world. If you ever get a chance to go up there, go up there. It's stunning. The, the fjords are amazing. There's just reindeer wandering around everywhere. It's unbelievably peaceful and beautiful up there. Uh, except for this final sting in the tail. This is the Nordcap Tunnel, and no one had told me just how awful this is. Um, so you can see it's nearly seven kilometers long. It just, you go in and it goes, zoom, like that, a 10% gradient down 250 meters under the ground, and then you climb up something the same on the other side. Just this absolute laser straight, 10% down, 10% up, it was horrible. Um, just the traffic noise in there and the claustrophobia and, and the, the weird throbbing sounds in there were, were just awful. So now, got out. There were these unbelievable winds, winds I've never experienced before, proper, proper gale force winds, two massive, massive final climbs, literally fighting the bike. Every time a car came past, it would block the wind for a second and I'd fall over. And it was just like nothing I've ever experienced before. The hardest cycling I've ever done. And then I got to the finish. And the best way I can describe the finish is to show this video that the organizers made.
to the finish. I also need to be sensible, have a little break I think. So I'm going to go and sleep for two or three hours and then try and just hammer it to the finish. earlier that everybody back home, unbeknownst to me, everybody back home had been completely blown away by the gold lame sheets story. Uh, so after the finish, where you can see here's four of the first seven finishers holding 50 pounds worth of Norwegian beer, <laughs> I got back home and my very lovely friends and family threw a party and they gave me a special shirt <laughs> in honour of the finish. So six super brief lessons that I will whiz past incredibly quickly because I've, I've now finally had a month to digest this and I, and I think there are some interest, genuinely interesting lessons. First, it's nice in the 21st century to do something where you've definitely done a good job. And I think any of us who work here at the university might appreciate that one. Uh, racing to win is way more intense than just taking part in a race. Uh, some of you may have experienced this, but it's, it's a different game. Um, being chased for 1900 kilometres is really stressful, and I shouldn't have taken the lead that early on, because that was horrible. Um, people really like a winner. I've never won anything before, uh, and yet suddenly when you win something, God, the attention you get is different to taking part. It's like nothing else. Um, 
Ultra-distance sport is brilliant because you can be good at it in more than one way. You can win a race like this by riding faster than everyone else or by not hanging around and faffing as much as everyone else or being a better route planner or being a, having a stronger stomach. There's lots of ways you can be good at this, unlike other sports. So it's a really exciting sporting event. And the final one I'm going to mention is the most serious. And I think, I think this is actually quite fitting for this establishment. And this is a serious point to finish on, like a 1980s cartoon. Um, I left school 100% convinced that I could not do sport. Uh, the school had shown me that I was bad at sport. I left with this idea, completely fixed idea, for the next 30 years that this was not something I could do, this was not part of who I am. And it turns out I'm actually quite good at it. Um, now, let's flip that around. What about the thousands of people who left my school thinking they couldn't do learning? And it's not for them, because they did badly at it at school, and it's not part of who they are. That's what most people come out of school with, is the idea that learning, oh, I tried it at school, I did really badly, uh, that's not for me in the future. I've experienced that now, I know what it feels like to find later in life that something school said you were bad at, you're good at. So one of the things I'm very keen to pursue in the future is to try and do something about that in an academic setting. So with that depressingly serious <laughs> point, thank you all very much Brilliant. for coming. much for that an absolutely fascinating talk and quite inspiring and slightly like oh god am i ever gonna i, I ride from bristol to bath and i think <laughs> right um, it is seven o'clock and we said we'd finish at seven so if anybody does want to go do go we won't be offended we know we all have other lives but i would imagine there's probably more than one question that somebody wants to ask ian so do you want to raise your hand if you have a question and our microphones can head in that direction so let's take Let's take, actually, let's take you first and then you, if that's all right. Is that? Hi, do you have any um, uh, more challenges lined up? Not yet. No, I, I genuinely, like I said, I finished the Transcontinental last year think, and immediately thought, oh, right, I, so that's how you do it. I, I did finish this and think, I should have done that faster. <laughs> so, you know, there was still a lot of faffing that could be dealt with. <laughs> Um, and so I've not decided what, I, I think I will do another race of this sort, but I don't know which yet. Yeah. Brilliant, thank you. How much were you sleeping? Oh, yeah, good, thanks for asking that, because I meant to say that and forgot, because my notes weren't working. Um, most nights it would be somewhere three and a half to four hours. Uh, and that was actually, I was absolutely, yeah, my, my partner's over here who just knows that I'm constantly moaning about how little sleep I get. But in that race setting, it was absolutely fine. I was getting by just fine on that. And where it tripped me up was the last couple of nights, because I really felt this pressure of all the people chasing up behind me. Uh, I started to cut it down, and like three hours, two hours, I think that last night was maybe two and a half hours, and that was too much. I, I couldn't have gone another night like that. I was a mess that last day. Right. Did you train beforehand to like cope with sleep deprivation? No. Didn't <laughs> No, I mean, I, the, the nearest I've come to training is just the previous things I've done. Uh, but I don't think you can really train for it. The, you know, the, 
the situation of genuinely racing is not like just going out and having a go. Um, I think you just have to throw yourself in. Okay. And if want, there's a question right at the back there, and then we'll come to you here. So it's all right. Gemma's taking that one up there. That can go there. Brilliant. Are you going to do the North Cape next year? Um, I don't think so. I, I think I'll, I'll do a long race. I, you know, I really want to do another long race like this, but I don't think I'll do it. I feel like I've done this one, uh, and I'd like to go and see somewhere different next time, I think. Are there many to choose from? There's a few. There, yeah. There's probably eight or ten races somewhere. Yeah. Right. Who knows? Right, sorry. We have a question at the back there. Hello. Hi. Yes, yes, it is. Hi. Thanks. Um, thanks for this, because you can only sort of get so much from Twitter. You did an amazing job, but it's really good to, um, to see it all and have all the photos and stuff. I wanted to ask you what your relationship with pain is like, and <laughs> yeah. whether it's a case of you feel it, but you just override it, or whether you don't feel it as much as maybe you think my other people might, or yeah. just, yeah, a bit about that, really. Uh, this is what happens when you like psychologists soon. Um, <laughs> yeah, I certainly feel it. Um, you know, it's, it might just be exhaustion, it might be uh, muscle weakness, it might be, yeah, as was the case, saddle soreness. Um, it, I, I won't lie, it's partly paracetamol, um, but otherwise you just, you just have to accept it. It, it, really, it genuinely is that, you can't change this circumstance right now. There's nothing I can do right now that's going to make this go away. The only thing I can do is just feel differently about it. And it does work when you need it. Well, I think on the one hand, it's just acceptance, which I believe is a thing in pain research, is if you can just accept it. And that's probably the biggest part of it, actually, is just the, um, you know, there is nothing I can do that's going to change this. It's, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt all day. Um, I just need to think about something else and just deal with that. And on the other hand, there was that sort of reminding yourself, well, I chose to do this. You know, I paid to enter this race. I knew it was going to hurt. Um, I've just got to accept it as part of what I'm doing. And, and that sort of reframing it like that was part of it. Brilliant. I think it's Pain Awareness Month as well, isn't it? <laughs> is that, yeah, question there. And then we'll come over to you next. Hi. You, you talked a little bit about your run around Cornwall and 72% of people dropping out. Yeah. So there is always something you can do to change your circumstance. How do you fight, how do you fight that? Yeah. Do you know, actually, no, it's, it's interesting you say that because, you know, when I was saying, like, these races, one of the things that appeals to me is the scariness of them. And that's part of it. Like, the Cornish coast, you can get to a road and get out of there quite easily. When you're, like, properly in the middle of nowhere, there's... There's no one going to help you. It's three in the morning, and you're in... It would, I'll, I'll give you an autobiographical one. It's three in the morning, you're kneeling in mud in a Serbian construction site with an unfinished motorway trying to wrestle a tyre back onto a wheel. There's no one there. You cannot just press a button and be out of there. You, you've got to just deal with it. Um, so, although, yes, in a longer term, I could have gone home the next day, at that point, you've just got to deal with it. Uh, you can't just press a button and escape. And that was part of the appeal to make myself deal with that. I think we had a question over here, didn't we? Thanks. On reflection, would you say 
the biggest challenge was mental or physical? Oh, it's, it's, th there's a saying in running, another of these runners' bits of wisdom, um, it's 90% mental and the other 10% is in your head. And, <laughs> and it's, it's absolutely, I mean, obviously you've got to be fit. Uh, and, you know, you, you, the fitter you get, the better and to a certain point. But it's not about the body. The thing that gets you to the end of this is, is your mind. Um, again, another interesting thing from Mike Hall, who founded the Transcontinental, another interesting thing he said was, it will not be a coincidence that the best prepared and best equipped rider is the one who wins. Okay, we had a question here, and then at the back, I think. Yeah. Hi, Ian. Uh, was there any point you felt scared? Did you feel ever like giving up? Yeah, quite a few. Um, the, the two things that feel scary, apart from like being isolated in the middle of the night, are obviously on the one hand drivers. And I didn't really mention, I was going to mention it with Hemietta's video, but um, you know, there are some bad drivers. And Finland had the worst, incidentally, um, of people who just drive like idiots. But that, that's kind of over in a moment. The other thing that is scary is just dogs. You know, Eastern Europe is just full of stray dogs. And they come out of nowhere and have a go at you. And, and that's probably the thing that is most frightening about cycling over there. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> a top tip. We had a question at the back as well. Did you say how many started and how many finished? Oh, yes. No, I didn't. Um, 130 started this one, uh, and I can't remember how many finished. I'm sorry. Um, not everybody, but I don't know. <laughs> you don't? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay, we've got a question down here. Just the microphone so everyone can hear, yeah. I'm just wondering, like in other big cycle races, say the Tour de France or something, you, it, it goes by teams. Were, there, were any people sort of collaborating with each other, or is there an advantage maybe to finding somebody who you've trained with and who you go about the same pace as, and you support each other, and that would actually benefit you more? No, no, it's interesting you say that uh, for two reasons. So the transcontinental that I mentioned, you can enter that as a pair. And in the six years the Transcontinental, has, the Transcontinental has run, a pair has never got anywhere close to being the first to finish. Now, this, the physics says you should, because you know, one rider behind another, you use vastly less energy. And so two people working together should be way faster than one person. And the enemy of it is the faffing. So two people riding together, the faffing is doubled. I noticed this just that afternoon I rode with Alesh. Every time we come to a, like a petrol station and go run in for some food, one of us is always going to be a bit slower than the other. So maybe the first stop, uh, I'm ready before him, but then I have to wait two minutes while he gets ready. Then the next stop, he's quicker than me, and he has to wait two minutes while I... And so you're always at the lowest common denominator of timing, and you just see time drip away as soon as you're with someone else. So you know, it really is... I can quote Bruce Springsteen. He travels fast as he who travels alone. Uh, and that is the case with this sort of racing, uh, counterintuitive as it might be. Okay. Right, we've got two other questions. I'm going to come to the uh, person just that's further at the back, just because you've already asked a question, but then we'll come to you if that's all right. And then I think we'll probably finish yes. in the next minute or so. Yeah. Just. Hi, um, I'm just trying to do the math here. So you sleep three hours a night. 
Does it mean you ride 21 or no. 20 so that you have time to eat? <laughs> no, you think, because then, then the faffing takes over. Um, it, it's just as on my bike computer I have two numbers next to each other one is how long I've been riding and one is how long I've been stood still and this is the thing I need. if I can fix this I'll be the best rider in the world because it's you, you know you get in and you look at the it'll be halfway through the day and you go oh eight hours riding two and a half hours stood still how where's that gone and somehow just that whole business of having to find food and sort out mechanical problems it just eats time um, so yes it might be 21 hours on the go but too much of it is spent faffing around and that's about the thing half, I need to, about sorry? half of it then sorry? half half of the time where you're supposed to be riding would be not no not half no it, it would be I, I was probably moving 80% of the time that I was riding on average but th it would vary a lot from day to day Great, so let's take one last question from here. Oh, okay, thanks. We'll have, a, we'll have another question. <laughs> I've gone. Just speak on? into it. Oh. Uh, I cycled to uh, Nordcap in the 1950s, and a little later I, I cycled to Istanbul. Oh, yeah. Um, I just wondered whether you, there was any racing in the same way to Istanbul because it's quite a significant journey to make a mm. distant journey just like the Nord Cap it's yeah. the southern extreme of Europe and you and I have been to the northern extreme <laughs> yeah um, no um, the transcontinental I mentioned in its first year did go to Turkey uh, and I think the second year as well but they stopped going to Turkey and went to Greece instead, just because Turkey got a little bit risky uh, with political uncertainty. Um, so they started doing the same distance but going to Turkey instead. But actually, the most north suddenly, there is another race that took place this summer, the North Cape Tarifa, uh, which is 7,000 kilometers from North Cape down to the proper southernmost point. Uh, and so that's another very hardcore race if anyone's looking for a challenge next year. Okay, right. I did promise this person here that they could do one last question, so I'll take that question and then I will wrap us up for the, uh, for the evening. It sounded like you stumbled across this Alice chat rather coincidentally, but presumably the end of that cycling relationship was spoken about, and how did you sort of decide to depart ways? Oh, it's, it, yeah, good question. Um, as we went to bed that night in our gold lame room, <laughs> um, it, uh, I thought, yeah, for exactly, like, just like the question I was thinking, oh, I can feel I've been going slower today than I wanted to. I need to get away. Um, but I thought, well, well, quite possibly. Um, but the thing is, it had been really nice to ride with someone, and we'd been quite chummy and, and so on. But I was, I'd lay there in bed trying to think of excuses. And I, you know, I was all ready to be very British about it and say, oh, look, I think I'm slowing you down, old chap. I think you should uh, head off. <laughs> Uh, and actually, it worked out really well. So as we were just getting our stuff together in the morning, I was ready first, uh, and I just sat down on the bed, and he looked over and said, I think it's better for the race if we go separately. And so actually, he, he read it perfectly and took exactly the right action at that point. Um, and he was right. We were there to race. Uh, it has been fun to spend an afternoon together, but we needed to go separately. Brilliant. And he handled it really like a gentleman. That's great. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much all for coming and asking your questions. A round of applause. Thank to you.
just say one final thought? I, I sort of thought this might come up in the question, it hasn't. Most people can do this. Genuinely, the, the gen, the, genuinely, and this comes back to that question earlier about is it in the mind or is it the body? Most people can do this. It's, the only requirement is you've got to really want to. And that's, where, that's the only real challenge is you've got to really, really want to. But if you do, most people can do this. And that's something I think it's important to stress. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So just two final notices before you go. Next month, on the 10th of October, we're looking at uh, combating pollution through biodegradable plastics. Um, if you haven't already and you want to, do use sign, put your name on the sign-up sheet. And uh, finally, if you are online, you may have already realised that we have sent you a link to a feedback form. Do please complete some feedback for us. Uh, it's really important that we know what you think of what we're doing so that we can make it better next time. I'll see you next time. Thank you very much.